Welcome to episode 145 of Junk Filter. I'm your host, Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is James Slaymaker, a film writer and the author of Time is Luck, the Cinema of Michael Mann. Returning to the show from Southampton, England, James, welcome back to Junk Filter. Thanks for having me. Our subject for today is the veteran director Ken Loach, who at age 87 has directed what he has said to be his final feature, The Old Oak, out later this year. He's a widely celebrated, though sometimes controversial filmmaker who has always centered the stories that he tells on the working class in the cinematic tradition of social realism. We're focusing our discussion of his work on two of his films tonight, the controversial 1990 political thriller Hidden Agenda, starring Brian Cox and Francis McDormand, and one of his most recent works, the gig economy drama from 2019, Sorry We Missed You. James, I have the utmost respect for Ken Loach. He is a god of cinema as far as I'm concerned. You are lucky because you live in the UK, and as I understand it, Ken Loach's movies are shown to school children. Can you tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> Well, it's not very often people come up to me and say, you're lucky to live in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so technically, Ken Loach is taught in schools across the UK. Um, His uh, second feature film, Kez, as well as the Barry Hines novel on which it was based, A Castro for a Knave, it is a staple of secondary school English classes. And my first exposure to Ken Loach was when I was going to say 13 or 14 years old and studying English, we read the Barry Hines novel over a period of about three or four weeks. Then we read the screenplay of Kez. And then finally, after studying the work for, I'm going to say, two full months, they finally showed us the movie, which I don't think is a particularly good introduction to Ken Loach because I was completely burnt out on Kez by the time I ever saw it. And when I first saw Kez in that context, honestly, I really did not respond to it at all. I think part of the reason is the way that Ken Loach is taught in schools. And I think this gets to a lot of the issues with the way that radical left-wing texts are taught in high schools in the UK, in the sense that the political and social context of the novel wasn't really dealt with in depth. The deeper societal critique and class critique in the book and the film wasn't really addressed sufficiently. So they took this book in this film, which is quite a radical critique of the British education system and the way the education system in Britain is set up to produce a constant stream of working class laborers who are educated just enough to do their job, but not educated in the sense of being able to think critically about the way they're exploited. It wasn't taught like that. It was taught to us as a sort of liberal humanist novel about family relationships and the way that a young man living in poverty manages to escape the the drudgery of his existence through the love of his birth. And so it was taught like that. It was taught as a character drama. It wasn't taught as being this piercing political critique, which I think it is now going back and watching it years later. 
Kess is such a harsh critique of somebody in the working class trying to better themselves and trying to imagine a, a bigger future and, and to follow any kind of dreams, only to have those dreams uh, brutally destroyed and uh, for the boy to be put in his place at the end of the movie. I find it hard to believe that schools would accommodate this as being part of the curriculum. I would think that a lot of teenagers might think, oh God, my my horrible future might be contained in this movie. Do we, you think that they were trying to neutralize the power of this movie by introducing it in this sort of liberal context? I definitely think that is an aspect of why Kez is in the school curriculum. The way that Kez was taught to us in terms of his representation of the British schooling system was almost like my school was saying, look how far we've come. So, for example, what they really focused on whenever they did mention the school scenes, which wasn't very often, they'd focus on the very harsh, punitive nature, particularly the uh, scenes in which the students get the cane. So they'd say, look how awful the education system was back then. You had these kids, um, these kids being forcibly hit, not being able to express themselves at all in class. And so you should be grateful about how far the education system has come. So, yeah, I think that it is used to divert our attention away from how many of the same injustices in the education system still persist, but they're just, they're hidden now, they're veiled under this smiley face, this rhetoric of self-empowerment, but all of the same class inequalities, all the same issues in regards to the way, way subjects are taught and the dreams and imagination and critical thinking skills of children are circumscribed by the curriculum. They didn't pay attention to any of them. Always somebody, isn't there? Somebody who wants to be awkward. Just like you, Casper. Casper, you make me sick. Every lesson is the same old story. You've begged and borrowed and skived and scrounged. You might think it's funny. You might think he gets what's coming to him. You might be wrong. Loach holds the record for the most films in competition at Cannes with 15. He's won the Palme d'Or twice for 2006's The Wind That Shakes the Barley, and again in 2016 for I, Daniel Blake. He also won three jury prizes for Hidden Agenda, Raining Stones, and The Angel Shear. And I, Daniel Blake was actually a surprise hit for Loach. He's really only made two movies that you could call hits with the wind that shakes the barley. I guess that's the palm door bump, but uh, I, I think people were very shocked at how well I Daniel Blake was received in the UK at the time. I think that I Daniel Blake came out at the exact right time in the UK because they came out right in the middle of a decade of conservative austerity. We had the, massive grinding down of public services. We had the underfunding of schools and hospitals. We had mass privatization. We had the moving of so many essential processes in terms of social security and welfare to the digital realm, which created more barriers and was seen in a way to push the older workers and also the less technologically adept workers out. And we had this 
system of welfare installed where so many barriers were put up to simply claiming benefits that I think that the general public opinion was that the welfare system was designed to be so unappealing it would put people off of ever claiming welfare. Um, we also had, which the film touches on, these very, very straight fit-for-work checks. So if you wanted to claim disability benefit, you had to go through these very, very straight examinations who would be with someone who worked for um, for the job center, for the government, so someone who had no medical background. And they'd ask you a series of questions to determine whether physically you could do things like pick up a box or whether you could just sit upright. And if you could do any of these things, you would be deemed fit for work. So you wouldn't be eligible for disability payment. You'd have to pay for job seekers allowance, which is a benefit in the UK, which you can only receive if you do a certain amount of hours of job seeking per week. And you have to physically prove that you've done that as well. Because quite often you hear stories of people who they want to be looking for work and they do look for work, but they just have no way of physically proving that they've done it. Mm -hmm. So the film came out in the middle of this decade of the conservative government. And it also came out in the middle of the resurgence of the left in the UK with the election of Jeremy Corbyn to the leader of the Labour Party, which was a massive surprise in the UK. It came after roughly two decades of Blairism um, leading the Labour Party, which which was built on this ideology of third-way liberalism, which was all about saying, well, bosses and workers can work hand-in-hand. Hand. There's no need for there to be an antagonistic relationship between employer and employee. And that really imploded with the 2008 financial crash. It was on the wane, really, from the time Tony Blair was in power. <laughs> he wasn't very popular for very long. He had a couple of years, and then the sheet came off. They very, very rapidly started losing vote share. And then we had the resignation of Tony Blair. Gordon Brown took over. The 2008 financial crash really hit. And that was when the Blairites were increasingly violently rejected from public life. And in 2015, they had a new leadership election. And... Jeremy Corbyn wasn't even supposed to be on the ballot. The election was between four continuity Blairites. And then they said, like the upper echelon of the Labour Party said, well, for some tokenistic diversity, let's put one member of the left wing of the party on the ballot. And Corbyn got in at the 11th hour. He only barely squeezed through getting the number of MP signature he needed to be even beyond there. And when he got on the ballot, there was a huge movement by the membership and a huge social media movement. We had a ton of young people joining the Labour Party for the first time who were already energized by Corbyn, by his entire political project, by his lifelong anti-imperialism, by the fact that he was explicitly and overtly anti-austerity, which none of the other Labour candidates were. And it was a massive surprise when he actually won the leadership election. 
So I, Daniel Blake, came out really in the first year of his leadership. So when everything seems to be on the up and up for the UK left, they had more power politically than they've had since the 1980s. There seemed to be a real resurgence and a real sense that they could even take power of the state. Mm-hmm. So I think that the success of I, Daniel Blake really fed into that. Ken Loach famously made a telefilm in the 60s called Kathy Come Home, which was about homelessness. And it actually was talked about in Parliament, and it led to some reforms in, in social programs. But my question to you is, did I, Daniel Blake, change anything for um, welfare conditions in the, in the UK? The short answer is no. (laughs) The long answer is definitely not. (laughs) Since then, if anything, things in the UK have just gone a lot worse for benefits claimants. I mean, when I, Daniel Blake, was released, it was greeted with this utopian reception, and I could see how that fit in with the wider Corbyn movement. So the Labour Party under Tony Blair, it has taken this very very negative stars towards benefits claimants and those on disability. Something famous from that era was this horrible wave of reality TV shows on UK TV, where we had, we had a show on daytime TV. It was a daytime entertainment and it was called benefit street. And it became a very controversial because the people on the street, it was the street in the UK where, um, the highest percentage of inhabitants were claiming benefits. And the TV crew that went there, they said this is going to be a show about community. This is going to be a show about how you're overcoming hardship, you're overcoming the odds. When it was released, it was called Benefit Street, and it was all about making these people look like buffoons. <laughs> and we also had we had shows like the Jeremy Kyle Show, which was all about bringing in people on benefits and parading them around for sport. It was pretty much the UK Jerry Springer show. We had a show uh, called Can't Pay, We'll Take It Away, which was, the show was about following repossession workers as they break into people's houses and take their stuff. And the whole message of all of these shows was simply, well, anyone who's on benefits, anyone who's poor, if they can't pay the bills, they deserve it. And you, the viewer, are superior to them and should enjoy seeing them wallow in their misery. Since the mid-90s, the entire mainstream political rhetoric in the UK, it was anti-benefits claimers. It was anti-unemployment. I mean, the Labour Party in 2015, when it was run by Ed Miliband, the Home Secretary Rachel Reeves, she literally came out saying, if Labour get into power, we'll be tougher on benefits cheats than the Conservatives currently are. And this is the Conservative Party who created the conditions for I, Daniel Blake. Labour was saying, we're going to be tougher on these people than the Conservatives are. When Corbyn came to power, they actually genuinely reframed the debates around benefits and around the unemployed. They were going to create these massive changes to the welfare system. So it would be about genuine compassion and providing a genuine social net. So when I, Daniel Blake came out, it fit into that political project and it galvanized a lot of people. It made people think, yes, we can treat people like I, Daniel Blake with more respect, with a genuine sense of community. 
since Corbyn's left, the Labour Party is now under the control of Keir Starmer, and they are back to the same old, same old anti-benefits, anti-unemployment rhetoric. Something they do all the time, which is this massive political dog whistle, is they say we're the party of working people. We want to support working people, and couch with this anti-benefits rhetoric they use. It's just a way of saying if you don't work, if you're disabled or you're too sick to work, you don't deserve political representation. Well, while we're on the subject of Loach and the Labour Party, let's talk about that schism because Ken Loach was expelled from the Labour Party as part of the purge of those on the left after Keir Starmer gained control of Labour. The excuse that was given was that Loach wouldn't publicly disown previously expelled members. Meanwhile, Loach was uh, making very effective campaign commercials for Jeremy Corbyn. Like I watched them and it was like, wow, what a winning argument that is. And and in fact, Corbyn nearly won that election. Yeah, I think it's worth keeping in mind that Loach has always had a fairly antagonistic relationship with the Labour Party. So he he was a member of the Labour Party, I believe, from the late 1960s to the 1990s. When Tony Blair took over, Ken Loach quit the Labour Party, and he remained outside of the Labour Party until Corbyn took over in 2016. During that time, he was um, affiliated with various different left-wing parties in the UK. Yep, so in 2015, he co-founded a new left party called the Left Unity Party, which was explicitly created to work against Ed Miliband's iteration of the Labour Party, which he perceived as being anti-immigration, pro-austerity, pro-prioritization. And he was correct because it was all those things. So as soon as Corbyn was elected in 2016, there was a massive press campaign against him. There was a massive movement within the right wing of the Labour Party against him as well. Famously, a bunch of the Labour MPs who served in Ed Miliband's cabinet publicly said they would not serve in a Corbyn cabinet. And the political rhetoric around that time, it was simply saying that Corbyn would never gain any traction at all. He was going to be dead in the water. Labour were going to face electoral oblivion. So the Conservatives, after the uh, 2015 election, they had a slim majority. They had a majority of 10 seats. And they had just passed the Brexit referendum, which no one was expecting Leave to actually win. So they needed a lot of power in order to put together a Brexit deal, which they could actually pass through Parliament. So the Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May, she thought, here's an opportunity here. If I fight an election against Corbyn, I could turn this 10-seat majority to maybe a 100-seat majority and therefore pass the Brexit bill easily. That's not to say she had any idea what the Brexit bill actually was going to be. She just thought, I can pass it no matter what it is if I have a larger majority. And all of the polls around that election were putting the Conservatives about 30 points ahead, 40 points ahead, just absolutely ridiculous. And then he rejoined the Labour Party in 2017, galvanized by Corbyn. He was always a big supporter of Corbyn. And yeah, he created a number of very impactful campaign videos for Corbyn, including a one-hour extended interview, which was released very close to the 2017 election, and I think could be argued played a not insubstantial role in galvanizing the vote for Corbyn ahead of that. 
So she holds the election. She loses the majority. So she had to form a minority government with the DUP party in Northern Ireland at the time. And if you look at the actual vote share of Labour under Corbyn and the Conservatives under Theresa May, they both have 40% of the public vote. So it was so slim, the difference between them in that election, and it was just such an affront to what the general standardized media narrative at the time was. And this, this sense that was being created by the press and also by the Labour Party itself that there are limits to what political possibility in the country can be. You can only do austerity, you can only do privatization. The remnants of this third-way liberalism pushed by the Blairites, this is what sensible politics, this is what is possible. Anything outside of that, it simply can't be done. And the 2017 election was a complete rejection of that. Corbyn was basically drummed out. Loach said that it was a witch hunt. He was very outspoken about Labour Party's treatment of their former leader and the party's attempts at drumming out any left activists in the party. Loach has been a relentless critic of Keir Starmer, calling him treacherous for the way that he treated Corbyn. And he's said that the party's efforts to erase Corbyn from their history with the full cooperation of the press, he's called a Stalinist effort. And he's uh, singled out particular scorn for what we would call the liberal mainstream media in the UK, which would be The Guardian and the BBC. Loach said that Corbyn underestimated the ruthlessness of the right wing, not only in the country, but within the party. Loach said that Corbyn's mistake was not to do what Starmer is actually doing, which is purging the party of an ideological wing they find inappropriate. I agree with every word he says. I think looking back now, Corbyn should have been far harder with the right wing of the party. When Corbyn came to power, part of his appeal was saying, and particularly to people who weren't really into politics, really, who had become disenfranchised by mainstream politics, was that he was tired of this relentless factionalism. He wanted to form a broad coalition. He wanted to bring into his cabinet a lot of the Labour MPs who weren't naturally part of the left. And I can see for practical reasons why he did that. I think that if he had immediately forced out all of the Labour MPs with a mainstream public profile who were associated with the Miliband, Brown and Blair governments, the press would have gone even harder on him than they did. There would have been a massive revolt from the Labour Party instinctively. But I think looking back, that's exactly what he should have done. He should have taken a really hard line because I don't think what we'd get with the press could have been any worse mm-hmm. than what he eventually got. Mm-hmm. I mean, what he got was the BBC once photoshopped his face onto Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> They once photoshopped a Make America Great hat again on them because yeah. they were trying to suggest that because Corbyn had a big popular base in the UK and there were a lot of working class men, it was essentially the same thing as Trumpism. Right. Because it's, it's the centrist viewpoint that any political movement which gets a lot of support from anyone who's not usually interested in politics, that is extremism and is unacceptable. If it's not this managerial, bureaucratic, mealy-mouthed performance for the mainstream press, then we can't have this. 
that game where they say that we're opposed to extremism from the left or from the right, but when it all comes down to it, they'll side with the extremists on the right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, if you want an explanation of what happened when it was Corbyn against Boris Johnson, that is the most perfect example. Am I wrong, or is it illegal to kill people and try to steal a country? An American has been murdered in Northern Ireland. Police said the car failed to stop at a roadblock outside Dungannon. And a high-ranking British inspector has been assigned to the case. We have the men that did the shooting. Our job's done. Are you willing to settle for that? The truth has been buried. I want that tape. What tape? The tape they found on Sullivan's body. There was no tapes. The investigation has been obstructed. Consequently, I was put under close surveillance. Mail was opened. Phones were tapped. But the real crime is the cover-up. Get down! Get down! So let's talk about the first movie we're talking about tonight, Hidden Agenda. It was kind of a second wind for Loach's career. He spent much of the 80s making television documentaries, some of which were actually broadcast, some of which weren't. He made a film about the British steel strike called Questions of Leadership, which was judged too biased to air. He also made one for the South Bank show about the mining strikes called Which Side Are You On?, it was banned for broadcast because it included footage of police brutality against the miners. So Loach was having trouble getting features made throughout the Thatcher years. He was also accruing debts trying to get documentaries made. And ironically, he took gigs directing adverts for the same agency, Saatchi and Saatchi, that helped to define Thatcher's public image. Loach said, oddly enough, after I did those commercials, people started taking me seriously in the business again. They think you're not some lunatic. If you can do commercials, it shows a certain kind of professionalism. I remember when Ken Loach a few years ago came out saying Marvel movies on cinema, that commercials, they're just there to sell toys, something like that. A lot of Marvel fans came back saying, well, actually, Ken Loach directed the McDonald's ad back in the 1990s. So who was the commercial director here? But I think there's a, a difference between making an advert for a company in order to make money to fund a project like Hidden Agenda and from making movies which are toy commercials. Well, a McDonald's commercial isn't pretending it's not a commercial, whereas a Marvel movie is pretending it's not a commercial. Exactly. <laughs> you know. So the Hidden Agenda project was set up at Columbia Pictures during the brief period where David Putnam was in charge of the studio, which we've discussed on this podcast on my episode with Ursula Lawrence on Bill Forsyth. But once Putnam was out at Columbia, Loach had to find another producer who would take this controversial material on, and he found it with John Daly at Hemdale, who had recently produced Oliver Stone's Salvador. This was a producer who liked to uh, finance leftist films and also was not a meddler. He left uh, the artists alone when they would do these things. So it was an ideal partnership for Loach. Hidden Agenda premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in the summer of 1990. It won the special jury prize. But I was reading that there was a huge row at the press conference where the film critic for the London Evening Standard, Alexander Walker, a unionist from Northern Ireland, confronted Loach and went on this huge rant in the press conference about how the film was irresponsible, how it was a fiction, and how Loach was a traitor. When Loach tried to answer him, he was shouted down by some of the other British journalists in the room, and then the international press started to shout down Walker and all the British journalists. It sounded like a mess. A conservative lawmaker, a man named Ivor Stanbrook, said that the movie was not a British entry, but an IRA entry. <laughs> and... Uh, 
the, the first thing we can say about Hidden Agenda is that it, it's a film about the cause of Irish republicanism. And the IRA are kind of a red herring in the plot. They're, we see members of the IRA in the movie, but the, the murders that are committed in this film are by the British security forces who are also pinning everything they do on the IRA. Loach pushed back on the accusation this film was pro-IRA by saying there's a difference between the IRA's activities and the cause of Irish republicanism. A quote from Loach, nothing justifies shootings, but in order to understand why there are killings now, one must understand that it's the latest chapter in a long saga of terrorism. And in Ireland, the terrorists have been the British over the centuries. I think Loach always hits a very raw nerve within the British press and the British political establishment whenever he addresses Britain's relationship with Ireland. I'd say Hidden Agenda and his later film, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, which is about the Irish War of Independence, are his two most controversial films in the UK. I mean, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, it won the Palm d'Or Cam. It is his second most financially successful film globally, but it barely got a release in the UK. The right-wing media went absolutely mad over it even before it got any kind of release here at all. The Daily Mail, in fact, went so far as to suggest that The Wind That Shakes the Volley was comparable to the work of Lenny Riefenstahl. They, they accuse it of trying to stir up hatred towards the British and the British military. I think part of it goes back to what we were saying about Kez, where if you take Ken Loach's films about poverty, the political nature of it is more subsumed. It's a bit more implicit. It's a bit more buried under these character dramas. And I think even with a film like I, Daniel Blake, you can conceivably say... Well, this is a story about one man's resilience. Uh, with Kez, you can say, well, this is a story about a poor boy fighting against the hand he's been dealt and finding some kind of escapism. With a Hidden Agenda and The Wind That Chased the Bali, they're explicitly about British imperialist violence and they're about the systems and the structures which are created to perpetuate that violence and to conceal that violence. And when Ken Loach sheds a light on these issues, it really, really rolls up the British media. Hidden Agenda begins with a quote from Margaret Thatcher to open the film that basically says that Northern Ireland is as much of a constituency of the United Kingdom as her writing is. As far as she's concerned, Northern Ireland is part of England and always will be. And the film ends with a quote from an ex-MI5 agent who says that there are basically two security systems in Britain, one for the powerful and one for everybody else. Brad Dourif is in this film. He plays Paul Sullivan, a human rights lawyer and activist who's in Belfast with his colleague and girlfriend, Ingrid Jesner, played by Francis McDormand. McDormand's character speaks of their time in Chile while they're in Belfast, and she says she's picking up similar vibes here in Belfast. But Paul is like, that could never happen here. <laughs> a, fir a first portent of doom. Brad Dourif is killed and out of the movie after the about the 20 minute mark uh, because he's come into possession of a secret recording. Um, for a long period of the film, we don't know what is on the tape and we don't know why people are trying to stop it from being heard. But Paul gets lured out to speak to the guy who got him the incriminating audio tape, who's a former British army guy. 
On his way to the meeting, he's met by some members of the IRA who take him to go meet this guy whose name is Harris. And they are all killed by who turn out to be British security services. They gun them down on the road and then they pull the kill shots on on their bodies as they're trying to get out of the car. On the news, it's described they evaded from a British army roadblock where the police shot them in self-defense because they claimed the car headed towards them. Brian Cox arrives to the story at the 25-minute mark or so as Peter Kerrigan, who's been appointed by the government to investigate the murder. And he runs up against the Royal Ulster Constabulary, who are the bad guys here, the Northern Ireland Police Force, and their boss, Brody. A very good performance by an actor named Jim Norton, who was on Father Ted. I don't remember him from that, <laughs> but he's he's openly contemptuous of Kerrigan's presence here. Can we talk for a minute about the god Brian Cox? Yes. I love him, and uh, I think this was around the time that I first became aware of Cox. I was so thrilled when he had a late career triumph as the, as the <laughs> patriarch on succession. <laughs> Which I've still never seen. And he was also um, R.I.P. William Friedkin, but uh, apparently... Cox, who played Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter, but Mann's first choice for the role was William Friedkin. Did you know that? Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Mann asked Friedkin to play Hannibal Lecter. Uh, Friedkin was like, you you seriously look at me and you think Hannibal Lecter? And Mann said, yes, I do. (laughs) Because like Hannibal Lecter, it's not obvious that you're a psychopath, but in fact you are. (laughs) That's what he told him. So just imagine uh, Manhunter with William Friedkin as, as lector. But anyway, I think Brian Cox in many uh, circles is considered the ultimate Hannibal in a movie, like even better than Hopkins. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think he's <laughs> he's just got a certain affability, surface level affability, which is barely concealing this very calculated contempt which no other actor has. I'm not quite sure how to even describe it, really. But he brings that to the role in a way which I don't think any actor, including Hopkins, has quite managed to get. That's the same atrocious aftershave you wore in court three years ago. Yeah, I keep getting it for Christmas. (sighs) You got my car? I got it, thank you. And how is Officer Stewart? The one who was first to see my basement. Stewart's fine. Emotional problems, I hear. Do you have any problems, Will? No. No. Of course you don't. It's a very, very harsh portrayal of the whole idea of whistleblowing and what will happen to you if you blow a whistle. Cox is very serious about the position that he has. He wants to solve this crime. He wants to take it wherever it goes. He reassures Ingrid that he will uh, turn over every rock. And, you know, even if it leads to uh, higher ups, that doesn't matter because he's got a mission here. We know very early on that he's going to have trouble. What I thought was so powerful about this movie was there's a scene where he meets with the former British agent who had the tape. And they meet at a Republican pub where Brian Cox and Francis McDormand get to hear the whole story about what's on this audio cassette. And what is on this audio cassette is a recording of these right-wing conservatives, some of whom we've actually seen in the movie as being spokespeople on TV talking about the murder of the, of the Brad Dourif character. 
on this cassette, they are talking about engineering the downfall of the leaders of the labor and conservative parties to pave the way for the hard right Margaret Thatcher, who, of course, accelerated a great deal of the British policy towards Northern Ireland. And Cox reacts to this the way that most police would and some people who don't want to believe it, which is considered the source. It's this guy at MI5 who's saying that this tape is out there. What, you know, how do we know it's authentic? And also this would never happen in my country. And then there's an even more terrifying scene where Kerrigan is picked up by a driver and taken to actual MI5 higher ups who quietly explained to him that in fact, it's true. There is this audio cassette. We did record this. We are embarrassed about it. We wouldn't want this thing to get out. And, you know, let's let bygones be bygones. What what good would it do now to bring this stuff up? We can give you the cops that shot the human rights lawyer, but there's no need to bring this any further than that. Oh, and by the way, we have blackmail photos of you with Francis McDormand in an IRA pub. We have a photo of you donating money to the IRA because he bought a raffle ticket at this pub. Uh, we, you were consorting with IRA officials. This will destroy your career. So I think you know what to do. And the scary part is that he does know that he can't actually do his job. Like, Not only does this report that he's filing have to go through people who will bury it, but they will also bury him. If he if he goes forward with it, so in a, in a very shocking conclusion to the movie, he actually lets Francis McDormand know that uh, you know you're on your own, kid. I can't do anything. It's a very harrowing portrayal of a man who was used as an instrument in an imperialist system, which he knows is wrong. He knows goes against every fiber of morality he has. He is completely completely against it at the beginning of the film. But just gradually through these multiple strategies of intimidation, the British government wear him down. They get him to this place where he's willing to just assimilate into the system. He's willing to give up all of his previous ideals out of a sense of self-preservation. And I think that the film, it's got, it's got quite an ambiguous attitude towards this character because on the one hand, he is presented as being one of the worst types of people in the country in a sense, in the sense that he is willing to go along with a system which is wrong, which is going to get civilians tortured and interned and murdered. And he makes a decision mostly out of a sense of self-interest. On the other hand, I don't think that the film is blind to the fact that he is placed under such immense pressure. And just having the entire force of the state bearing down on you to that extent is going to force a lot of people to bend in this way. And I think that it's quite a shocking film in Loach's body of work. Again, in the sense that this really isn't the kind of character he usually focuses on. He usually focuses on the people at the bottom of the social hierarchy who rebel against the establishment in any way that they can, usually in quite small-scale ways, either, say, in cares by finding expressions of themselves 
which goes against the way that they have been written up by society. Or an I, Daniel Blake, with these little acts of rebellion. Like in I, Daniel Blake, there's a scene where he sprays graffiti on the side of the job centre, and he's immediately arrested, but he at least just has this one moment where he expresses his dissent, he gets a crowd to gather around him and listen to him and sympathize with him. In Hidden Agenda, it's the complete opposite. It's about a man who is born into privilege, and he remains in privilege. His career advances, but only because he has tossed under the bus everyone he initially set out to help. We are encouraged to believe that this is the guy who's going to seek justice and make sure that it's done. Kind of like... um, the way that everyone went cuckoo over Robert Mueller during the Mueller report <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> like <laughs> he's the male lead. And then he is uh, coldly destroyed by the, these literal powerful people. Like the, the fantasy that people always have of the three or four guys in the room drinking cognac and controlling the world. It's true <laughs> <laughs> in this movie. And, and they do it in such a nasty way to him. And then they do this very childish thing to him where they say, oh, and by the way, we're going to uh, release these blackmail photos if you don't go along. We're going to make it look like you're having an affair with Francis McDormand. We're going to make it look like you give money to the IRA. You're going to be destroyed. And he knows they're right. He wants to fight them anyway, but his partner basically says, you're on your own, mate, because I'm a career policeman and so are you. I'm not throwing my career away for this. Let it go. And he does. And you know that it really bothers him. And then there's another big twist where we think that uh, the the secret service people that were responsible for Paul's murder are going to go after Ingrid next. She drives to Dublin to meet with the guy who has the tape to, to get the tape from him. And it's a red herring because we think the British secret cops are going to kill her. But in fact, they just wanted to know where the guy is who's got the tape. And then they kill him. And we hear on the radio uh, at the end of the movie that uh, he was murdered by IRA terrorists. When we have been watching this movie, we know that it's that the IRA actually have nothing to do with anything that's happening in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that this, this is why Ken Loach using professional, more polished actors and acting styles in this movie really works. It's portrayed in the style of a more traditional genre hero. He's very no-nonsense. He's very decisive at first. He's very mobile. He's very spirited. And the preciseness of the performance really emphasizes that in a way that Ken Loach's earlier lucid performances don't. But I think that he's doing this for a very good reason, which is to lull the audience into a false sense of security to think, okay, we're in the hands of this stereotypical hero. He's going to uncover the uncover the conspiracy. He's going to get restorative justice. He's going to solve the narrative. And the fact that he is so thoroughly disempowered at the end is such a god punch. I think it's as much of a god punch as any other ending in Loach's body of work. And there are some very, very downbeat endings in Loach's cinema. Mm -hmm. Well, like Loach is such a good filmmaker that at the end, when, uh, when Kerrigan breaks it to Ingrid that, you know, you're on your own here. uh, She's, she's come into possession of the tape and 
she says, well, I'm going to go to the media. And we see her immediately walk away from him and go to a payphone. And we just know that uh, this is her trying to call somebody that she knows <laughs> in the media and it will not go anywhere. The only person that's going anywhere at the end of the movie is Brian Cox getting back on the plane to go back to London. (laughs) Like it's just not going to happen. The other thing that I really respect about this movie is the naming of names. Like the the Tory MPs in this film are fictionalized, but they talk about Margaret Thatcher as the villain (laughs) and they ascribe all these terrible things that happen in the movie to her leadership. Yeah. And I respect that across Loach's entire body of work. He has a very material grasp of British political history He's not afraid to name names, as you said. He's very engaged with the nitty-gritty in the actual processes. And Loach has made a lot of enemies in the UK because of his willingness to name names and go against um, ostensibly progressive and ostensibly left-wing and liberal movements in the UK, which he views as having sold out. As a transition to the next film that we're going to talk about, Hidden Agenda depicts the power that Thatcher had and the subjugation of the people of Northern Ireland and the terribly unfair system where uh, even an investigator who goes in to solve this mystery finds out that actually it's not really a mystery and you're not supposed to solve it and you're going to destroy yourself if you try to upset the apple cart. But Thatcher's reign introduced all the terrible austerity that was perpetuated in Britain in the 90s through the neoliberal rule of Tony Blair. And so many of Loach's films have taken place in the shadow of what has happened to the UK in the wake of these political movements. And the film that we're going to talk about next, Sorry We Missed You, takes place in the nightmare world of austerity in Britain that was basically created by such people as Thatcher and Tony Blair. The gig economy is the subject of this movie and the effects of neoliberalism. Uh, But I want to do a tiny little detour uh, because this movie also reminded me of a little scene Ken Loach film that I never really stopped thinking about called The Navigators. Did you get a chance to watch that? I did. I loved it. The Navigators was released at the Toronto Film Festival where I got to see it. I understand that it went straight to television in the UK. Um, Yep. But it is a very, very powerful film about the horrors of privatization and what it has inflicted on the working people. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about it. Yeah, I had not seen this film before. It's, I thought it was a very incisive portrait of the hell of privatization and the way it completely reconstructs workplaces. It erodes workers' rights. It atomizes the work experience. It introduces these these incentives within the workplace which are sold to workers as improving their lives and giving them these really tiny perks which give them the illusion of having more power over their lives and over the workforce, but in fact is only there to make them willingly sign away their rights. And I think something that the film does really well is it creates this cognitive dissonance between the absolute hell that the workers are going through as their company strips them of their rights and the benevolent image projected by their employers, 
repeatedly in the film, we see these very sunny corporate PR videos with this very early noughties kind of like sunny PowerPoint graphics. It reminded me a lot of, you know, and Tim and, Tim and Eric's a billion dollar movie where they have the dopest PR. Yeah. It's like that, except it's just, it's a smiley middle manager explaining that from now on, they're not going to get any sick pay anymore. Or if they, if it gets to clog off, they're not going to get paid for the day, things like that. The sheen of metropolitan benevolence with which these changes are introduced versus the actual eroding conditions on the ground, it really fits into the new labor aesthetic where you had this great cultural movement of Cool Britannia of, well, everyone gets to be lifted up into the middle class now. The Navigators came out in 2001, and I hadn't really seen a movie yet that uh, was a full-blown attack from the left on Tony Blair and on neoliberalism. So I guess in a way, I'm not surprised why it was barely seen by anyone. But I thought Loach was really onto something in that film because it was really about the privatization of national services and the workforce that w- that uh, benefited from a nationalized workplace and the camaraderie, which is so important for workers, that Loach has always talked about in his movies, how important it is. Uh, the, the word <laughs> camaraderie derives from the whole idea of a comrade. And this uh, new world that all these people were trained in the old world and have to function in the new world with all this bullshit inclusive language and uh, power of positive thinking kind of presentation from a company that actually no longer has to give a shit about their workers. You know, as long as they're up there on stage talking about how much they do, that's enough. But as we see over the movie, that the health and safety measures are uh, far from the forefront of the minds of management and it's the workers that pay for it dearly. Yeah, absolutely. All right, all right, listen, just doing the job is not going to be good enough in the future, right? You've got to do it well if we're going to succeed. Deaths have got to be kept to an acceptable level. (laughs) Any volunteers? (laughs) Unfortunately, the days of a job for life are gone. But the jobs are there for all of us. There are no limits to what this team can achieve together. You know what it also reminded me of a little bit was... um, the David Brent world of like middle yes. happy middle <laughs> managers who are actually incompetent. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a place where uh, you're not supposed to be friends with any of the people you work with. And they like to eventually pit people against one another. And uh, the conditions that are dangerous in the jobs that these people do are, are not at the forefront of the minds of managers. Yes, absolutely. And I think if you look at Loach's earlier work, particularly a film like Riff Raff, you see a sense of camaraderie in the workplace and a collective interest in protecting the rights of the entire group, which you don't get in his 2000s films. You don't get in films like Sorry We Miss You and you don't get in The Navigators because all the workers become so cut off from one another during the course of the film. So in Riff Raff, you get these great scenes of all the construction workers getting together, talking about their conditions and realizing, hold on, we're all being screwed in the same way. So why don't we do something about it? And those are scenes of incredible joy in Loach's films, 
the earlier films. Then when you get to a movie like The Navigator, which is a transitional film and loaches over, you get the workers being split apart and they all have to sign up to this agency. And the agency, it doesn't keep them together. It splits them all off to individual jobs offered by different privatized rail companies across the city. And there's one great scene where a few of the the main characters are sent off to work on the, the railroads and they are joined by two other agency workers who live about three hours away. And they come and they have no idea how to work on the railway. They are construction workers and the agency just took a look at the opening and thought, working on the railway, working on a building site, it's all manual labor. I'm sure they can do this. And they arrive without the right equipment. They arrive having no idea how to lay track. And the management is completely fine with the fact that they have no idea what they're doing because they can pay them a hell of a lot less and they collectively cause them a hell of a lot less trouble than, say, the the more unified construction side workers of Riffraff do. Mm-hmm. And we see also a very pernicious strategy of social control later on in The Navigators because one of the characters who complains about these practices used by the agency, they complain that the agency aren't complying with the proper health and safety. They complain that they don't have enough men working on the project to get the job done. They are told by the agency that they're not being given any more work because they've had complaints that they're too much of a troublemaker and it's causing the reputation of the agency to go down. So, and this, again, is all done in this very mealy-mouthed managerial speech. It's delivered very calmly and in this kind of friendly, friendly bureaucratic pattern. It's not presented as being this very transparently evil authoritarian way of keeping the worker down. It's the agency worker politely telling him, well, we would like to send you out on more jobs, but we've had some complaints about you and we've got a reputation to think about. So we're not firing you. You're still with the agency, but also you're not allowed to work. Yeah. A continuation of that point is made here in Sorry We Missed You, which is a movie that um, I felt very, very anxious while watching it, even though uh, it's a very quiet film in many respects and just uh, watching these working class people living their lives. But it generated for me sort of uncut gems levels of tension and anxiety (laughs) while I was watching the movie. It's a film that focuses on the effects of austerity and neoliberalism on a working class family and how the family unit can actually be destroyed by having to function in this environment where you are overworked, you are underpaid, you are cut off from your children. And under the illusion that you are your own boss, like that's what's so insidious about the the job that our protagonist Ricky takes. Ricky has been out of work for the longest time. He's got to figure out how to support his family. His wife is a caregiver and goes around looking after people Uh, some of whom are in dire need of help and are trapped at home alone. Some of them also seem to be uh, other victims of this austerity program. The movie opens with Ricky applying for a job as a driver for a courier service called PDF, or Parcels Delivered Fast. (laughs) 
a thinly veiled portrayal of a courier service like FedEx or something, and we meet a real piece of work. Loach has always been good at depicting the asshole that you have to work for <laughs> when you're when you're a worker. Uh, this incredible guy named Maloney, who's like a giant guy with a bald head. I found out that uh, the actor who plays him, Ross Brewster, was a police constable for 22 years before making his screen acting debut. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Maloney for a sec. <laughs> He's amazing. The self-proclaimed patron saint of nasty bastards. <laughs> at the very beginning of the movie, he's explaining how it works for this guy. And it's that sort of insidious, empowering language that management uses to con laborers into thinking that they're taking control of their own lives. You're encouraged to think of yourself as a self-employed person when you work for this company. He says, you don't get hired here. You come on board. We like to call it onboarding. You don't work for us. You work with us. You don't drive for us. You perform services. There's no employment contracts. There's no performance targets. You meet delivery standards. There's no wages, but fees. No clocking on, you become available. You sign up with us, you become an owner, driver, franchisee. Maloney gets very excited when he finds out that Ricky's never applied for unemployment benefits. Uh, He says, uh, well done. You'll be the master of your own destiny, Ricky. It sorts the fucking losers from the warriors. (laughs) Describing taking this job as being a warrior. Yeah, and he says they should put a fucking statue of me in the, in the <laughs> courtyard. Like, he's really proud of his little fiefdom. Um, and this is also one of the other depressing things about working in jobs like this is the measurements of everything that you're doing. You have this, uh, this device that costs $1,000 if you need it replaced. That is, uh, you know, the device that you use to scan everything. And it basically tracks your every movement and the amount of time that it takes for you to get to your destination. There are packages that are part of your uh, route that are prioritized and have to be there by a certain time. All these things are docked from your pay if you don't live up to them. But the most mortifying thing, which Maloney doesn't mention to Ricky, when he applies for the job, is that one of the big things that you need to do this job is a plastic water bottle to piss in because you don't get washroom breaks, even though you're self-employed. Yeah, Yeah, I think the power of the entire film lies on that this contrast between the empowerment that Ricky is sold at the beginning. Maloney is very skilled at this because he flashes Ricky a lot. During the opening interview scene, he says, you're a grafter. I can tell that you're not the kind of guy who just wants to live off the state. You're a hard worker. You can control your own business. I think at one point he even says "You something along the lines of you shouldn't be pushed around by assholes. You should be your own boss. Mm-hmm. So he sold this package. But then he learns very quickly that it was all just a spiel to get him to sign away his rights. So he has to buy his own van. Well, he doesn't have to. Oh, yeah. That's what's so slimy (laughs) about this this whole business model. Uh, You don't have to buy the van. You can rent it from us for 65 quid a day, or you can buy the van. What do you call it? You can pay in installments. You can get a load and pay in installments. There's a significant financial outlay for anybody who takes this job if they don't already have a van. Yeah, so immediately everything is framed as being Ricky's own choice. However, whenever he's given a choice, he really doesn't have an option. 
Like he can either rent a van with the company, but it costs it costs pretty much as much to rent the van as he would be making from the deliveries, so he'd be making no profit. So he really has to buy his own van and spread out the installments. He sells his wife's car to get the van, which means that doing her job is now incredibly difficult because she's got to go by public transport. And she's not paid for any time that she spends going from appointments to appointments because she's paid exactly for the hours that she's working with the clients and anything beyond that she doesn't get any money for. And even though he's bought the van, he's paid for the van, it's his. It's technically his van and his business. He gets reprimanded by the company because he once drives around his own daughter in the van because this allegedly, although he's not technically an employee of PDF, by having the van and making deliveries, he's part of that franchise. <laughs> so if he does anything to upset the image of the franchise, he gets reprimanded. But he doesn't get any of the benefits of actually being an employee. Yeah. So another big issue in the film is that Ricky is told that he decides what hours he works. He can take as many days off as he wants. However, if he wants to take a day off, he has to find a replacement driver and it costs him £100 a day for that. And when Ricky tries to actually take advantage of this and he tries to take a week off, it's impossible because there are no replacement drivers. So essentially, he's just not allowed to take any paid sick leave, but it's being sold as him having complete control of his schedule. And uh, you see also how management uh, divides and conquers uh, the workers. There's a moment where he penalizes one of the other drivers. In front of everybody, he gives that guy's workload to Ricky. It instantly creates division in the ranks of the workers. And when Ricky's like, sorry about that, mate, the guy's like, fuck off. Yeah. You know, it's like they'll <laughs> never be friends now. That's what Maloney's job is, is to make sure that friendships don't form either. Yeah, and going back to what we were talking about before about the breaking up of camaraderie in the workplace, you compare a film like Sorry We Miss You to Riff Rap, where there's a very strong sense of community amongst the workers. Then you get to a film like The Navigators, where we begin with this very strong community, but it's gradually broken up. In Sorry We Miss You, there's no possibility of any kind of friendship or any kind of solidarity being created because they're all in their vans for 14 hours a day. They only see each other at the depot for very short periods of time. And if they speak to each other for any, any amount of time longer than 30 seconds, Maloney will yell at them and say, you're not packing your van, you're not making money for me, you can't do that. And so there are no friendships between any of the uh, employees of the, sorry, any of the... <laughs> They're not employees, I forgot. Any of the uh, business owners who work at the depot. And yeah. <laughs> that we we barely get any scenes of any of the other employees talking to each other. Yeah, because they've all been atomized. They've all been separated from one another. The difference between the world of work in Riff Raff and the world of work 30 years later in Sorry We Missed You is that the the day laborers in Riff Raff, they might not be making very much money, but they're not accumulating gigantic debt the way yeah. that the people in Sorry We Missed You are. Everyone in this building knows I am nasty bastard number one, but I am greatly misunderstood. All the complaints, the rage, the anger, the hate, I soak it all up. I use it as fuel. 
with that energy, I create a protective shield around this depot. This place might look like a shithole, but this depot is a fucking gold mine. The shareholder should erect a statue in the car park of me, Maloney, patron saint of nasty bastards. He basically admits that he works a 14-hour day, six days a week. His wife also has to now commute on public transportation, which I presume is a nightmare across England, if it's a nightmare here in Toronto. Yeah, but because of uh, the massive underfunding with austerity policies again. Yeah. So it takes her now forever to do her rounds. And some of her rounds are extremely demanding. Very, very old people who are losing their grip. One of her clients, it's very sweet. She's a, I guess she's a former worker. And she's very surprised when Abby tells her about what is expected of her to do her job. And she says, she says, whatever happened to the eight hour day? And shows her old photos of her when she was young, when she was working as in the trades. The idea that uh, labor rights are now old pictures in an old family album. They're not the reality anymore. And uh, this is a very old woman who needs the help of a nurse who is uh, being worked to death and sees no benefits to, to the labor that she does. And she works very, very hard. They both do. And we see how difficult it is to be a uh, uh, courier driver, constant running against the clock, the constant trying to uh, get somebody to sign for a package. He sometimes gets a hard time from people at the door. The one thing I will say about this movie, it got under my skin to the point that I went for a walk yesterday and I started noticing all the people working as couriers and started seeing all the white vans and all the people running around. This movie made me feel like I must make a promise to myself to always be nice to courier drivers. <laughs> Maybe this isn't a surprise for a lot of people, but for me, I was just like, wow, this is the world that everybody has to live in now, the gig economy. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that if The Navigators is a transitional film, looking at the ways in which privatization has shifted and fractured the workplace in Britain, then A Sorry We Miss You is a film about how Almost everyone has been affected by these changes to some extent. Because with the navigators, we get the sense that what the main characters are going through is it's new and it's, to a certain degree, unique to them. Whereas in Sorry We Miss You, there is the sense that everyone is being exploited in the same way within different professions. James, I don't know what a zero-hour contract is, which they talked about a lot in the film. So can you explain this concept for my non-Brit listeners? Yep, certainly. So a zero-hour contract was established by the Conservative government in 2010 after the election of David Cameron, after the financial crash. And the idea behind it was that unemployment was very high, the Conservatives love to talk about how good they are at creating employment. It's one of their main lines of attack against the Labour Party. It's Labour are high unemployment, Conservatives are low unemployment. However, they had a problem because they also didn't want to invest any money in anything. So they came up with the concept of the zero-hour contract. And what it means is that you are employed by a company, but the company doesn't need to give you any guaranteed hours. They can ask you to work anything between zero hours and 40, 45 hours a week, depending on what the company needs. But you don't have any hours guaranteed in the contract. 
And the amount of work you do can vary wildly week by week and can also be very irregular. You have situations where someone is working one hour at 8 a.m., then nothing, and then another hour at 6 p.m. So wait, so you devote your entire day, but you're really only paid for two of those hours. Yeah, exactly. So you're given the hours and you are only paid for the hours that you are working. It doesn't matter if there are massive gaps between these hours. You don't usually get paid for lunch. You don't get paid for any uh, sick days or holiday days you take. And the reason why the conservative government did this was so they could artificially inflate employment numbers. Because if you're on a zero-hour contract, you technically are employed. Even if you're working one hour a week or two hours a week, and there were no employment rights in place to prevent companies from doing this. So the Cameron government, after rolling this out, they started boasting about having record low unemployment. But a massive percentage of employees were on these zero-hour contracts. They exploded after 2010. So we see this in the movie in the sense that Abby, she is she's forced to make these very long commutes on bus. She's not paid for any of these commutes that she makes because the travel time isn't part, technically, of her contracted hours. The contracted hours begin when she meets the client and they end when she leaves the client. She also has a very, a very irregular schedule. So there are repeated scenes where she's asked to come in to work during the evening. She has to break away from dinner and time with her family. And there are also times when she's uncertain about whether she'll have to work that day at all. Yeah. And her character is a softie. Like she actually yeah. cares about her clients. There are perhaps home care service providers that don't. So they have two children. The youngest, Liza Jane, is a very smart cookie. But her older brother, Seb, is very troubled. And it's very clear that the work requirements of their parents have left the kids to their own devices. Liza Jane is functioning well enough without supervision. But Seb is increasingly getting in trouble at school. He goes running with his gang of graffiti artists using up empty billboard spaces. You get a sense that it's tough to sell advertising in Newcastle. <laughs> um, and he's skipping classes. And there's a very rough scene where the parents are confronting Seb about his issues. And Seb is defending himself almost like a great lawyer because he knows there's no future for him in this world just by seeing what his parents have to do to survive you know, there's a scene where uh, they find a notebook of all of his drawings. And on one of the pages, it says, who cares? <laughs> so when they're uh, when dad's telling his kid to straighten up and fly right and, you know, go to uni, the kids like go to uni, what? And be like, you know, my friend Harpoon's brother, just having debt and uh, working in a call center. Uh, why would I want to do that? And the dad says, um, you know, if you just knuckle down, give yourself some options. Otherwise, you're just going to end up like, and Seb says, what, like you? Like, it's brutal. Uh, because, you know, the, this dad is obviously trying his hardest and doing his best. But the system is set up that you can't possibly succeed. Uh, it's very, very difficult. If your family's in crisis, the crisis is only going to be exacerbated by your working conditions. Like, he's trapped in his car when he should be doing things uh, with his family. He's not there for his family when they need his help because of the demands of his job. Yeah. And again, it comes back to the 
the way that he's voluntarily signed over his rights in order to get these perks, which never actually come. And there's one very affecting scene where he asks Maloney to have a week off because of all of the family drama and everything he wants to address. And Maloney says that another employee's daughter attempted to commit suicide, and even he wasn't allowed a day off. So Ricky's problems are relatively small scale, and he's definitely not going to get any days off for that. There's a lecture scene as well where Seb gets arrested, and Seb needs to have a parent there in order to get off with a lighter sentence from the police, just to get off with a caution. And so Ricky's in this impossible situation where if he doesn't leave work right then, his son is going to get a harsher penalty from the police, and that's going to impact his entire working life when he grows up. But if he does leave work, he's going to get hit with a massive sanction by his boss. So it's this real situation where you are damned if you do or damned if you don't. There's a heartbreaking scene towards the end of the movie. The father is so angry at Seb because this destructive behavior is now screwing up his life like he might now have a criminal record. He'll now have to check the box in any job application that says, have you ever been charged with a crime? He thinks that Seb stole the the keys to his van and he violently punches out Seb. It's horrible. Seb leaves and the daughter bursts into tears and admits that she actually took the keys to the van because she wanted the family to be back to the way it was. Like the child was actually trying to like bring the family together by, by stealing dad's keys so he couldn't go to work. As a result, the boy now has a criminal record and dad's punching out the son. Uh, things are becoming terrible in this family and the girl breaks down and cries and gives the keys back, which she stashed in her little bunny rabbit. And it's just so brutal because uh, now the family has to put itself back together again. And I think that also the uh, the fact that Ricky assumes that Seth has done it because he's preventing him from going to work reveals how much Ricky has internalized this logic of um, the integrity of hard work and this idea of a meritocracy, which is so ingrained in UK society. He's such a slave to his job that he assumes that the only reason anyone could have taken the keys is as an act of spite, because it's depriving him of having the ability to go to work. It doesn't occur to him that Liza or anyone else may have taken the keys because they don't want him to go to work because the family is more whole when he's not at work, when he's not running these 14-hour days, when he's not incredibly stressed. And I think that is one of the most heartbreaking things about the film is that Ricky assumes that if he works hard enough, he will unite the family around him. They have this dream of being able to buy their own property through hard work and that everything they're going through is just a temporary stage. And if they have the ideal suburban house, if they become homeowners, then the family will unite around them. But it's this very mentality and it's very, this very ambition, which is what actually pushes the family apart and all the characters away from each other. And it's the reason why they don't have any time to spend together. I mean, in the one scene which does represent a kind of image of domestic bliss in the film where they're gathered together and they get an Indian takeaway 
that scene is interrupted, first of all, by Abby getting a call from her agency saying, uh, you have to go to work immediately. So she's taken away because of that. And again, because she's on the zero-hour contract, if she doesn't do this work, she won't get paid. And it's implicit that if she turns that down, she'll get a sanction in the same way Ricky is sanctioned if he turns down work. So we have that. But then Seb comes up with this idea that, okay, even though Abby's being dragged away to work, we can still make something good of this. We can gather together in the car. We can we can bring in this scene into the car and kind of attempt to make the demands of work more bearable by having each other. But then very soon after that, Ricky is reprimanded for having a Liza Jane in the car. So even the one attempt of making the work home balance more bearable by riding in the car together, that's taken away from them because it interferes with the vision of the franchise, which Maloney is trying to put forward. The van gets uh, attacked by some by some thieves. Ricky gets the shit beaten out of him. He has his scanner gun destroyed. And in fact, he even gets the bottle of piss that's in the van for when he needs to relieve himself poured all over him. Loach pulls out all the stops in that scene. And uh, he gets a call when he's in the hospital from the boss who's yelling at him about uh, how you broke the scanner or the scanner has been broken. It's going to cost you a thousand dollars to get fixed. And, you know, he's in trouble now for being robbed on the job and some packages were stolen. He's going to be on the hook for that. And, and Abby just grabs the phone and just lights into the boss. It's not going to do Ricky any favors ultimately, but it's a cathartic moment because we're just so glad that finally somebody's screaming at Maloney. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she's very territorial. She's like, nobody fucks with my family. But the family is now fucked with. I mean, at the end of the movie, Ricky, who now is in such debt from having this job, tries to leave the family. He And, and poignantly, he writes the goodbye note on one of his uh, courier, sorry, we missed you cards and uh, drives off into the night uh, injured. And uh, the movie basically ends with a gigantic question mark as to what's going to happen to this family now. It's such a gut-wrenching final scene. With Ricky in the van, which symbolizes the destruction of this family and the incredible demands of his work, which is offering him nothing. And the entire family, aside from Ricky, gather outside and they're all trying to get him out there saying, you're too sick to work. You're going to kill yourself. You can't do this. There are more important things in life. And I think the presumption, at least when I saw it, I felt that this was perhaps going to go towards a more sentimental ending where he was going to come to this realization that, yeah, there are more important things than work or yes, I am being exploited and I can't put up with this. But no, he very violently drives through them and off towards work and it ends with this harrowing final shot, which is him very, very viscerally injured, just sobbing to himself as he still continues to drive. So he's still going to do the job exactly as it's been laid out. And his family aren't seen beyond that. He moves forward and we don't see the family's reaction, which just shows the absolute extent to which he's become alienated from them. 
And it mirrors an earlier scene where he's so tired that he's almost asleep at the wheel. Yeah. You get the feeling at the end of the movie that it's going this man is just going to drive himself into oblivion. And like most people living in precarious employment conditions and and sad family situations, there's no happy ending and Loach is correct in not providing the audience with one. Yep, I absolutely agree. I love that it ends on this very bleak note. I love that it doesn't try to tidy anything up. It doesn't provide any bad conclusions. I actually find the ending of Sorry We Miss You a lot more powerful than the ending of I, Daniel Blake. Because I, Daniel Blake, it ends with what I'd call a note of potential hope. It ends with the death of the Daniel Blake character. But then it goes on to show the uh, the younger single mother who's also struggling with the benefit system, giving this very rousing speech about, about human rights and how we must stand up against this oppressive system. I think Sorry Miss You is more powerful in the sense that it's about a man who doesn't even quite realize the extent to which he is being oppressed. He still has this mentality that if he works hard enough, he will rise through the ranks. He never breaks away from that very slavish line of thought, which he's been raised to believe, largely because the British media, it just shouts this ideology at you from every angle. It says, if you're on benefits, then you're a scrounger. If you take any sick days, you're a scrounger. If you fail to comply to the demands of your work, then you are a failure as a person. But if you work hard enough and if you climb the corporate ladder, then eventually you will be this self-made ideal employee and you will have everything you need and everything you want. Yeah, it's just, it's a very, very bleak uh, way to end the movie. We care very much about these people. And we also realize that um, the world that we live in is full of these people, in fact. And this is the thing that I admire so much about Loach is that people that don't usually get their stories told are the stories that he wants to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Maloney himself, even though he is such a, such a bastard and a self-proclaimed bastard, he himself is an incredibly tragic figure because he has such a lofty self-image. He views himself as being a warrior worthy of having a statue. <laughs> but he is a middle manager in a shitty little depot, yeah. making money for people who don't give a shit about him. And he himself will never actually own anything. He'll never produce anything. He'll never be in charge of anything. All he does is organize the delivery of packages amongst these other very desperate men. But he has such an inflated image. He also doesn't understand how he's a victim of exploitation as well well that scene where he tells ricky you know you go to these people's doors to drop off the packages how many of these people actually say to you have a good day or give a shit about you uh this is a question he could also be asking himself yeah and he's absolutely blind to the fact and he's obsessed with the idea of having the most profitable depot in the area whatever that is. means Yes, <laughs> which is such a pathetic life goal to have. And he uses it as rationale to treat everyone else like shit. <laughs> the final thing that I want to say about Ken Loach is, is, you know, he's been incredibly consistent throughout his career. And he's almost always on point with what he has to say. 
but it's also very depressing that this guy has been sounding the alarms for 50 years now about the what it's like to be working class and the 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 threats in in the name of uh orderly society that are posed to anybody who uh anybody from the kid in Kess who wants to follow any kind of dream and the things that are done under the guise of uh making your life easier and stuff it's it, he's been remarkably consistent for this entire time it's depressing that uh although he has made movies that have affected uh people it hasn't really led to major changes it's amazing that we keep talking about riffraff as being like a vision of a more ideal workplace than we have now because <laughs> riffraff itself is a very depressing film yeah. it's just only looking at something like sorry we miss you we can look at riffraff and think you know we had a pretty good back then <laughs> Well, James, before we go, um, you and I both love William Friedkin, and we should take a moment to say R.I.P. to a god. Yeah, he was one of the few remaining genuine visionaries in American cinema. Somebody completely devoted to their own vision, someone who seemed completely untouched by the wider trends and wider attitudes, someone completely unbothered by disrupting or obsessing preconceived notions of what cinema should be talk about and how cinema should represent certain issues and values considered sacred. And I think that the entire landscape of cinema is going to be a lot poorer without him. Like Ken Loach, William Friedkin didn't have very much time for superhero movies. <laughs> there was a great quote that I, um, I read, I guess it was at a, at a Q&A at a screening of Sorcerer or something. They were asking Friedkin for advice on whether they should shoot their movie that they want to make on film. And Friedkin was like, who the fuck cares? <laughs> <You know? laughs> like he said, uh, who gives a shit? Uh, you know, <laughs> if you make a movie on film now, you might be able to show it on a wall in a bar in Texas, but who's going to watch it? And somebody else in the audience said, well, Spider-Man 2 was shot on film. And Friedkin said, fuck Spider-Man 2. <laughs> He was the god. And, you know, he, there were some obituaries were like, well, if you think about it, though, he really only made two good movies, The French Connection and The Exorcist. And it's like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> like, if I had to make a top five Friedkins, I'd have to leave about three or four great movies off the list. Yeah, I think if I made a top five Friedkin, I might not even have space to put The Exorcist on there. No, me neither. Because yeah. you got to put Bug on there. you got to put Sorcerer on there. You've got to put To Live and Die in L.A. is my favorite. Absolutely. So that's, that's number one for me. I'd put Killer Joe on that. And I've always underrated the French Connection. Uh, I, it was one of the first Blu-rays that I bought was the French Connection. And I I was like, eh, French Connection is pretty good. French Connection 2 is actually better. And then I watched a beautiful transfer of French Connection. I was like, forget it. French Connection is better. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, he shall be missed. Absolutely. Did you ever see James Franco's interior leather ball? No, but I read the amazing Friedkin comments about it. <laughs> That's better than watching it. it it's a horrendous <laughs> film. But he's trying to do he's trying to do what he thinks. I believe the idea behind the project was this is cruising, but this is like the actual radical cruising. This is mm-hmm. this is the progressive cruising. But it's back when he was doing that weird kind of homoerotic 
take stuff that he did, which he thought was very, very, very progressive and very radical, but it was him sort of tipping his toe very lightly into surface-level homoeroticism. But whenever push, he'd jump back and say, no, 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 I'm not actually attracted to men. I remember a great quote from him where he was like, I embody homosexuality in every conceivable way. Except I've never had sex with a man. Yeah. Just a complete Where, asshole. Whereas Friedkin would always leave you guessing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cruising is um, an amazing film. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do a show on Cruising, so I don't want to say too much oh, about yeah. it here. Okay. But um, I was prepared for Cruising to be way more homophobic than it was. I mean, it certainly has moments of that, but uh, it's actually pretty progressive <laughs> compared to <laughs> some homophobic movies I could name. Yeah. Compared to everything James Franco has ever been. Yeah, exactly. Well, James, uh, wonderful to have you on the show again. Where, what are you up to and where can people find you? Yep. So I am on Twitter at AJM Slaymaker. I'm also writing film criticism at the moment. I'm mostly writing for Film International. Uh, my book, The Time is Log, The Center of Michael Mann, is available from Telus Publishing and Amazon. And I'm currently working on my second book, which is called Visions of the Future, the, the Cinematic Essay in the Digital Age, which hopefully should be out sometime towards the end of 2024. Beautiful. Well, please come back anytime, James. Always wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Always great to talk about the gold popper loach. <laughs> Before we go, I just want to plug our Patreon. Junk Filter patrons help to make this show possible. And they receive every episode of the series, including all of this summer's Miami Vice sidebar series. To become a patron and to support the show directly, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. We'll have another episode in the next few days. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. And thank you for listening. Thank you.